Good morning. It is good to see you this morning on a cool Saturday. Uh, we had a, a wedding earlier this week, an outdoor wedding, and uh, the rehearsal was on Thursday. Uh, it was brutal outside uh, to be working through the rehearsal, but uh, we praise the Lord for the opportunity that we had there in the wedding and uh, the uh, celebration now this morning where the heat has relented somewhat as we've come in. It felt more like fall again this morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue in our study of this incredible book. And a bit of humor to get us started with, uh, kind of fitting to where Paul is in his letter to the Thessalonians. He's writing to them in defense of his faith. He's writing to them as a shepherd, and uh, there are often humorous opportunities that come up. And one I was reading about uh, some time ago, and I'd written down and want to share with you, a young pastor had just told his congregation that he was leaving. He was standing at the door after the service and greeting his congregation when one of the elderly saints approached him. Her eyes were swimming in tears as she sobbed. She said, Pastor, I'm so sorry you've decided to leave. Things will never be the same again. The young man was flattered but was equal to the situation as most young pastors seem to be. He clasped her hands in his and he replied most graciously, Bless you, my dear, but I'm sure that the Lord will send you a new pastor even better than I. Choking with emotion, she said, that's what they all say, but they keep getting worse and worse. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 2, we begin this new chapter as Paul is defending his shepherding of the church in Thessalonica. He's defending his work there. In the first chapter, he praised the Lord for the evangelistic work that had been done and the growth that had been achieved and accomplished and being multiplied upon in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. But in chapter 2, he's shifting gears somewhat, and he says this in the first two verses, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you, grateful that you are the one who builds your church. We think of what had transpired in the Apostle Paul's life having left Philippi under great duress in the middle of the night and going off to Thessalonica on purpose to endure more persecution. Lord, as Paul begins to unmask the suffering that he had endured and as well that we begin to understand the heart of the shepherd found here in chapter 2, that we would be those who identify well that even in our own ministries whether that be in a more prominent role in the church or a lesser role in the church, that first we'd recognize that we each have a ministry, a role, a responsibility to be played out in the body of Christ. And that we are to do so not as it appeals to the masses, but that as it is pleasing to you. 
So Lord, we praise you that Paul has given to us an outline, an image of what it means to be servants who are pleasing to you. And regardless of the way that others viewed what Paul was doing, we praise you that you were the one who brought the fruit. You were the one who brought the increase. And we pray the same for us. We desire to be a church fellowship filled with individual believers who are fulfilling the ministries that you have set out before them. And having set those ministries out before each of us, I pray that we would have the boldness that the Apostle Paul had in completing that task because that is the purposes that you have designed for each of us individually. And that corporately, as a body of believers, we would be as the Thessalonians, well-known, not because of the latest and greatest, but well-known because of our faith as being resilient and steadfast, and that the object of our fascination is not the crowds. The object of our fascination is the God who saved us, and that we desire to be found pleasing to you, ready for when Christ returns for his church. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to listen and hands willing to obey and give me the words to speak, that they would be from you, that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do here this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Paul begins the second chapter on a very different tone than he started chapter 1. And remember, chapter divisions are not inspired. They are there to help us to navigate through the text. But we clearly see that this was a good place for a chapter division. Because Paul has gone from his prayer in chapter 1, where he's praising the Lord for all of the things that he has witnessed and seen in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. One after the other, pouring out so that all of Macedonia, all of Achaia, and everywhere that Paul would go, he would hear of the faith of the Thessalonian believers. And so Paul has highlighted that great truth coming into chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, you see that there's some opposition. There's those who are standing, sneering in the crowds. And Paul is not going to let them by without addressing the issue at stake. And so Paul moves from his thanksgiving that reminds us of the great truth of the faith of the Thessalonian believers. And if you need to go back, go back to last week's message, and you can listen to it online, and, and you can follow up to where Paul is in this moment. But as we do so, we recognize that Paul has reminded the believers of their faith. He's reminded the believers of their anticipation of Christ's return. And now he begins to defend the ministry in Thessalonica. Verse 1, he says this, For you yourselves, brothers, or no brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. Paul first rejoices over the harvest. That is where he has been to this point. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we recognize that Paul, praising God for the church, is now coming to a conclusion, at least in the thanksgiving prayer that Paul has, and he recognizes his role as evangelist has been completed in the church at Thessalonica. And his role as church planter has been completed. And the definition of that work and the harvest of that work, Paul has now illustrated for us. But now we begin to see the shepherding care of a pastor. And it is exuded through the life of Paul. We see his concern as it creases the brow of the shepherd as he looks as he gives us a look, rather, at his thoughts. 
In the coming verses, he's going to tell us what he's thinking and how it relates to the ministry because oftentimes we don't get that picture. We don't get to see the curtain pulled back from the under-shepherd doing the work of shepherding. But Paul gives to us that glimpse. We see the rawness as he expresses both his fears for the church at Thessalonica and his hopes. Alan Redpath says this, he says, The conversion of a soul is a miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. That is the task that under-shepherds, pastors, are driven towards. It is one thing to start a race, but it is quite a different thing to finish it. And that is where Paul has brought the Thessalonian believers at the end of chapter 1. You started the race. You're anticipating the return of Christ. Now finish the race. Finish the race. And Paul shows the work of a shepherd. In fact, over the next few weeks, Paul will paint a quick portrait of his role as shepherd. While he was with the church at Thessalonica, and we start here in verse 1 because he rejoices as the reaper, the one who was able to be the laborer that brought in the harvest, that he saw the harvest come into. We'll also see in verses 2 through 6 his role and his purpose as a preacher. So he's the proclaimer of the excellencies of God. And then we're also going to see his nature as kind and gentle in verses 7 through 9. And his humility as a servant in verses 9 through 10. His faithfulness as a father in verses 11 through 12. So over the next several weeks, Paul is going to pull back the curtain. And he's going to begin to show us who a shepherd is and how a shepherd functions. And as he reminds us of all of this, he is not only rejoicing over the harvest, but he is showing to us a confidence in ministry. A confidence that comes in ministry. And this is a unique perspective from Paul. Paul steps forward in verse 1 in the face of an unseen but likely heard critic sneering in the crowd. As we start in verse 1, listen again. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That is not a sentence that would be something shared where everything is going very well. We know the church at Thessalonica was healthy, that their faith is well known, but Paul hits right to the point, someone in the crowd is sneering. Where's Paul at now? Where's your great pastor now? You can recognize the the sneering elements. And it's probably coming from the Judaizers who were the ones who chased Paul out of Thessalonica. And their question is, where's Paul? We went to Jason's house and he's gone. We threatened Jason, we find Jason, and Paul's still gone. Where's your pastor? Is he just one of those rogue traveling preachers who's come, coming through for his own gain and his own glory, and then as soon as he doesn't get that, he just departs? Is that where he's at? It was not uncommon, and so the sneer has a little bit of a bite to it, because it was not uncommon for phony teachers, false teachers, to travel along well-traveled roads, such as the road that went through Thessalonica that was the Ignatia Way. They, these traveling preachers were kind of the snake oil salesmen of the Wild West in our country. They promised greatness. In fact, we 
We see the same kind of preachers today, and oftentimes they grace the television sets that uh, we flip through channels or YouTube channels. They're promising greatness. They're promising healing. They're promising all kinds of wealth in an effort to get what they could out of their hapless followers. Just like today, they existed in Paul's day. In Paul's day, they actually had to go from place to place. Today, they just have to show up on your YouTube channel, (laughs) your social media platform, or as you're flipping through channels, they'll often show up there. Not all of them are. Not all of those who grace those places are those kinds of preachers, but you have to have the discernment to know who they are and who they are not. And that is the very thing that is happening right now in the church of Thessalonica. You have Judaizers who are attacking Paul's credibility. They're attacking Paul's ministry. They're attacking Paul's pastoral abilities and call. And Paul is not going to stand for this kind of misrepresentation, and he's going to address it directly, revealing and defending his ministry. There may have been those less mature believers in Thessalonica, less discerning believers in Thessalonica, who were beginning to follow after the sneerers in the crowd. And we have to be wise to know who is the ones who are preaching the truth of the Word of God and those who are not. And so it's easy to be swayed one to the other. Paul is speaking to those who are believers in Thessalonica, and he's reminding them of what they themselves saw and witnessed. Paul does not let the attack go. But he doesn't do it in the form that we would expect him to stand up. He's not saying, look at who I am. Notice what he does. And we're going to briefly go through a few verses here. Look at verse 4, which we're going to study in the weeks to come. But notice what he says. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Beloved, whatever you do for the name of Christ, may that be your testimony. What Paul just said. May you be one who is not out for the pleasing of individuals. We oftentimes desire to be people pleasers. We will um, motivate and activate different directions and skills based upon what we see the response of others as. We don't want to stand against the crowd. We want to stand with the crowd. And that crowd may stand against another crowd, but we certainly don't want to stand alone. And so we adjust ourselves to be people pleasers. And Paul says, I, I preached, or rather we preached, that would be Paul and Silas, we preached a message that was entrusted to us by God. And we spoke not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Look down further into the chapter, verses 8 and 9. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share the gospel with you, not share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There's an important truth that is drawn out. Paul does not elect let this attack go, but he doesn't defend himself as we may be accustomed to defending ourselves. 
His purpose for defense is not that his name is cleared, but that the truth of the gospel remains untarnished. May that be our motivation, that the message of the gospel remains untarnished. Why do you live Christ-like lives in front of sinners when they're mocking you for it? Why do you live in faithful servanthood to the things of the Lord when no one notices so that the gospel of our Savior remains untarnished? It is on this basis that Paul categorically defines success. And this is where you and I uh, jump in. You say, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not an under-shepherd. Well, Paul is going to define categorically what success in the Christian life looks like. Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica, and their work there was a success. But the crowds around, the sneers, the jeers who are outside of the church are mocking the church, saying, where's Paul now? This doesn't look like much of a success, this fledgling little church. What are you doing out here in in the shadows of Mount Olympus? Don't you know that you're going to be squashed by the pantheon of the Greeks, let alone the pantheon of the Romans? Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica, and there was no ministry, no church there. But the ministry as they leave a few weeks later is deemed a success. And Paul says, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain, verse 1. It was not for personal increase. That would be diminished as soon as Paul left. But the impact of the gospel was what increased. It was not for for a selfish temporary kingdom. We see that a lot in churches and church culture today, that it is built around the personality of a charismatic speaker. That is a selfish, temporary kingdom. We like to do this because we like what fits in our generation. We like what we like, and so we accumulate to ourselves people who are similar to us. When the church should be cross-generational lines, it should also be cross-ethnic lines. We recognize that Paul here is saying that the church in Thessalonica was not for my own selfish temporary kingdom, but rather for the glory of God. And Paul's work was well rewarded in Thessalonica. He could look back with joy because the Lord performed great work in this city. Paul did not say that the work that was done there, that the lives of the believers were Uh, the crown to Paul, or the jewels to Paul's crown. He says this is for the glory of God. He could see measurable evidence of the hand of God at work. Listen carefully, because no matter what your ministry, what your role is in the body of Christ, our obligation is to do the right thing and to leave the rest in God's hands. That's what Paul does. He does the right thing and leaves the rest in the hands of God. So, let's look a little more deeply into the ministry at Philippi, because Paul goes there now. Verse 2, verse two, he says, For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. And we could say to you and I as well, as we know, because we just finished our study in the book of Philippians, 
We look back to Acts chapter 16 when that work started, and we've been working our way through the book of Philippians, and then we moved from Philippians into Thessalonica, as Paul did along the Ignatia Way. So Paul starts out at Philippi, and he's harshly treated there, as you and I well know, having studied Acts 16 together. And he travels on to Thessalonica. And so that is that a few moments of time, a few weeks of time that Paul is highlighting here as he continues to defend his ministry. Paul reminds the believers that ministry before and during his time in Thessalonica was not easy. You are called, believer, to do something that is outside of your natural capacity in the flesh to do, in the ministry and work of the body of Christ. You're called to do it in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit to each other, sharpening one another. And Paul says, let me illustrate how difficult this is. Paul speaks openly about the sufferings that he faced in the course of ministry. You see, Paul didn't run when the going got tough. He didn't run from ministry. He left cities, yes, but he did not run from ministry. If you do not remember the treatment that Paul suffered in Philippi, go back this afternoon and read the last half of Acts chapter 16. Paul will outline for you all the events, or rather Luke will outline for you all of the events that happened to the apostle Paul. As he was in Philippi, Paul, having been put in stocks, and you remember, uh, Paul, the idea of stocks is not as we think of medieval stocks. The idea of stocks is that Paul is being stretched. As he's being stretched, he's arrested illegally, held illegally, because he is a Roman citizen and should not have faced either one of those things, the arrest nor the stocks. And when the leaders of Philippi hear that he is a Roman citizen, they try to sweep it all under the rug. We're sorry, we're sorry, Paul. Just, just go away. Just go away. Paul left Philippi having been beaten and jailed on made-up charges. Paul and Silas had both suffered unfair and unjust treatment in the city of Philippi. How many of us, don't answer this out loud or in a way that we can see, but ask this in your own heart, how many of us would give up on ministry at that point. I, you told me to do this ministry, and whether it's the ministry of service or hospitality, whatever your giftedness is, and you are using that giftedness in the body of Christ, and the going gets tough in that ministry, do you say, enough, I'm not going to use it anymore, I'm suffering psychologically from the challenges of doing ministry? Paul says this, Verse 2, the first half, but though we had already suffered, been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you, Thessalonians, know. Paul had already told them. Paul had already detailed for these believers the opposition, the persecution, and the challenges of serving the Lord. And he used Philippi just days earlier as his example. They probably saw Paul walking around trying to straighten out his back from the stocks as he was still trying to adjust from the torture that he had received at the hands of the Philippians in jail. An interesting quote from a war leader, Napoleon. Napoleon instructed his soldiers this. He said, no event ought to prevent a soldier from obeying. Now, Napoleon had other reasons for that, but I found it as an interesting phrase. 
No event ought to prevent a soldier from obeying. Despite all of his challenges in Philippi, Paul was in Thessalonica soldiering on. These sneers in the crowd, the ones who jeered at Paul or at the church in Thessalonica and said, where's Paul now? They have no idea the cost of bringing the gospel to Thessalonica. They have no idea the price that was paid for that. And so Paul confronts this conflict. Paul's testimony should challenge our perceived ideas of entitled, comfortable Christianity. In this country, it's very easy for us to live an entitled, comfortable Christianity. But Paul is challenging those perceived ideas. You are not promised an entitled, comfortable Christianity. In fact, you're entitled to a suffering Christianity. And despite that being told to the Thessalonians, believers are being added to the church in Thessalonica all of the time. And Paul's already told them this. Paul leaves now, and Paul is helping us understand, as he's leaving Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica. He travels there, Acts 17, which we studied to begin our study here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we must recognize that Paul knows that suffering is going to continue. But keep your finger here in, Thess- in 1 Thessalonians and turn back to the book of Acts. And we're going to turn to Acts 16 for just, just a half a second here as we look back into verse 40 of Acts 16. And listen how Paul leaves the Philippians. You would think Paul would be anxious to get out of Philippi. Leave it behind. Kick the dust off of his feet and go. But notice what is said of Paul's ministry as he's released from the stocks, released from prison. Verse 40, So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Paul, who had been beaten, locked up unjustly, and illegally, put into stocks unjustly and illegally, dismissed out of town, just don't tell anybody what happened. We don't want the Romans to know what's going on here at Philippi, because we might get into trouble. So, Paul, you just be quiet. So dismissed illegally and unjustly. And what does Paul do? He goes to Lydia's house, and he encourages the saints of the church. That's the heart of a shepherd. That's faithfulness in ministry. That is doing what Napoleon said to his soldiers. No event ought to prevent a soldier from obeying. Paul obeyed God. And he encouraged the church at Philippi, and he leaves Philippi under that context. He comforts the church. He did not arrive in Thessalonica then, going back to 1 Thessalonians. He did not arrive in Thessalonica to find security. He didn't go there because he was going to be protected. He didn't go there because there was a safe house there. He didn't go there even because he was driving along the Ignatian Way and his camel broke down. (laughs) He didn't go there by accident. He went there on purpose knowing the cost. He arrived in this city because the Lord had an explicit purpose in his arrival in the city of Thessalonica. And the Lord has the same explicit purpose for your purposes and your direction today, right now. Paul obeyed. Regardless of what had just happened, 
Paul obeyed. Furthermore, when tensions began to rise with the Judaizers, and we know that that happened because we studied Acts 17, it doesn't take long for the Judaizers to, to begin to accuse Paul and begin to stir up the crowds against Paul and say, we know what Paul does. He goes in and he mixes it all up and things are bad and he's destroying the whole world. The whole world is an uprise because of this man. Paul, in that context, pressed on to finish the mission. Why? What was the secret? Every believer is called to live out their faith actively. It is not obedience to be lazy or passive in Christianity. That's not obedience. However, there are going to be difficulties in the Christian life that would cause us to recoil. But right in the middle of verse 2, Paul tells us that it is tells us what is the not so secret key. It's not a secret. He says this in the middle of verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You say, well, where's that at? Paul, in his boldness in ministry, faces his critics with the key of Christian success. Paul could face the critics because his boldness was not found in Paul's charisma. His boldness was not found in Paul's strength. His boldness was not found in Paul's ability to bring a room together. His boldness was found in the Lord God. Paul did not proclaim Paul's message. Paul did not proclaim Paul's message. Paul proclaimed the gospel of God even in the face of critics. He knew, therefore, that he could stand before God in righteousness and success, having completed what God purposed for him. Beloved, this is time for some introspection in our own ministry. If you know Christ as Savior, you have been called to ministry in some way, using your gifts in some way, in the body of Christ, to sharpen one another in the body of Christ, to reach out to those who are lost, to obey the Great Commission, to reach the lost for the sake of Christ, to share the gospel with them. And when some come to know Christ as Savior, we disciple them to the greatest impact that we are possibly able to do by the ministry and help of the Spirit of God. We are each called to do that. Whether you say you have the gift of evangelism or not, or you have the gift of discipleship or not, you are called to do that work. The question that is before us and the introspection that we must observe is, will you stand before a holy God, having completed the purposes that have been assigned to you, or will you wilt before a holy God? We know because of our sinfulness that we would wilt, but because of Christ, we have the opportunity to stand. But now we're talking about the significant point of truth, where the rubber meets the road. When you are asked to give an account, will you wilt or will you stand? 
on the day of judgment. For you who know Christ as Savior, this is a day when rewards will be heaped upon you, Paul tells the Corinthian church. Or well, where rewards will then be tested by fire, will your rewards be consumed or will they stand the testing? Paul knew he could stand before God in righteousness. He knew that the ministry that he had done, even though it was being sneered at by the crowds, was success in the eyes of God who had purposed that ministry. Because, and in part, not only because of what had happened in the lives of the Thessalonians, but because Paul didn't deviate from the message. He was steadfast in the gospel. He was steadfast in the gospel. There is this interesting phrase, and I've highlighted it already, and I'm going to jump back to it in verse 2. And it is a sober self-examination as we see the Apostle Paul proclaim it. This phrase is, we had the boldness in our God to declare to you. Your translation, and some translations do say, we dared to tell you. ESV says, we had the boldness in our God to declare to you. Paul was bold in and out of jail. He took his boldness into every arena of life. Not because he was that kind of charismatic speaker. Not because Paul could face any crowds without fear. But in spite of fear, Paul remained steadfast in the gospel. He was not a theorist or a philosopher speaking at the gates of the city. And you can imagine as Paul is penning these words that at that very moment as they're being read in Thessalonica, there are those chiefs and elders of the Thessalonians who are at the gates of the city presenting all kinds of Greek philosophy in the shadow of Mount Olympus. And they're arguing back and forth over these philosophical views and the theories that would be there and, and the debates that would ensue around that, all trying to inch themselves up on top of a lofty tower of popularity and control and power. Paul was not a theorist or a philosopher speaking in the gates of the city from his lofty tower. Paul was in the thick of it. He was knee-deep and slogging through the trenches, the spiritual warfare that raged around. He faced the opposition head-on in face-to-face confrontation. Paul was courageous. But he and Silas were also ordinary men. But they were men with a burning passion to proclaim the only message worth standing for. They were men with a burning passion to stand firm on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was the only message Paul would stand on. That was the only one he would stand on. Paul's shepherd heart could rejoice over the time spent in Thessalonica, not out of some hedonistic glee spun from conflict and persecution and suffering, but from seeing the fruit of the gospel because of those who had heard and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. 
Paul looked over the ministry and he said to them, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming was not in vain. You can look around Thessalonians and you can see other people who've come to know Christ as Savior. You know that the price that we paid in arriving here was worth it. Because remember, these were people who days earlier, weeks earlier, no more than just a year or so earlier, had been pagan worshipers, had been idol worshipers. And Paul had highlighted that they were the ones who had turned to God from idols at the end of the last chapter. And that now instead of looking forward with a dismal outlook, they were those who looked ahead awaiting the coming of the Lord. So your entire perspectives have changed. Not because I sold you some uh, promising message of great hope, but because the Spirit of God was at work in your life. And that despite the persecution, and despite all the reasons to disobey and to follow after the idols of the world, to disobey God and to follow after the idols of the world, you see the impact of the Spirit of God among you. Herein lies another element of application for us. Believer, you've assembled here. It's air conditioned. It's padded chairs. Are you working extra hard to show the work of the Spirit of God in your life to sharpen the lives of others? That's what Paul was pointing to. You believers are sharpening each other in the body of Christ. You play a significant role in showing the purposes of God for the body of Christ. Paul's shepherd heart could rejoice because he saw that happening in Thessalonica. It's also fascinating to me, and we see it in every chapter. We're going to see it as we come to the end of chapter 2. Again, uh, I want us to just move ahead to the end of chapter 2. We're going to end here in verses 16 through 19. We see the intensity that Paul gets through the chapter. He's talking of the intensity of what has been happening in the church at Thessalonica and the intensity of the persecution. Verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so also to be filled up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them at last. So we get to the end. Those who are sneering are going to face the wrath of God. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul looks forward with great anticipation to God's tomorrow while he's slogging through the trenches of today's ministries. As he's slogging through the trenches of today's ministries, he's longing for God's tomorrow. Beloved in ministry, are you longing for God's tomorrow? Is that your motivation? To stand firm in the gospel because one day soon, God's tomorrow will arrive. That's where Paul was at. That's what motivated Paul. That's what caused Paul to stand firm is because he knew very soon he would stand before his Savior and God. So he would stand firm. As we recognize this defense of ministry in the life of Paul, 
we have two applications that we have highlighted through, both one of them being introspection and the other one being action. Are you actively serving the Lord, faithful in the ministry that God has placed before you? Are you looking forward to God's tomorrow? That is the action. The introspection is this. Are you doing it for the right reasons? Are you standing firm on the steadfastness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to appeal to the masses? Trying to be a people pleaser? Trying to satisfy the cravings of the attaboys, well-dones, that we get from others instead of the well-done, good, and faithful servant that we long to receive from our Savior. That's why Paul went to Thessalonica. It was not an accident. He went there on purpose. He went there with ambition, knowing that there would be persecution. And his account, his recognition of the value of it, he says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you is not in vain. God's purposes will not be in vain. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you grateful for the example of the Apostle Paul in just these two verses. Lord, as we move through the rest of this chapter and we begin to see Paul's shepherd's heart laid bare before us, I pray that we would be those who are mindful of the ministries that you have called us to. The ministries that you have placed in your purposes before each and every one of us. Different than Paul's. Unique to us. But nonetheless impactful for your glory. I pray that we would each be found faithful in understanding those purposes. That we'd recognize that we won't find them in the latest, greatest bestsellers or the latest and greatest trends in the church. But that we will find them in communion with your Spirit, in obedience to what we read in your Word, and faithfulness as we proclaim the Gospel with no variations and no changes, no additions or subtractions. Lord, we praise you that we are a people who can look back and see your hand of blessing and protection. We see your hand of mercy and grace upon us. We see you at work in our midst. We see believers functioning faithfully and diligently for your namesake. And I pray that each of us would seek to attain to those goals of being found faithful before you, steadfast in the gospel, despite the persecution soldiering on, that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say. Lord, I imagine it is with great joy as Paul pens chapter 2, knowing the persecutions that he faced, but also knowing the great work that you had done and continue to do in this church. May we have the same heart and the same mind as we stand here now and glorify you together in song. May we do so as those who glorify you truly and faithfully in every way, seeking to serve you faithfully in every way. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the example that we've seen in your word today, and we ask your blessing upon us as we continue in worship this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.